From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Biologic Warfare on Uveitis. The holy grail of immunology, and they understand the holy grail, being basically finding these, these drugs that are highly effective and minimally toxic. That's what the promise of these biologics is. First this. As seen from here, is committed to medical education devoid of hidden industry bias. Dr. Suler reports research support from Abbott and Genentech and prior research support from Centacor. As seen from here, reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month. But the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. This is the second part of a two-part podcast with Eric Suler on treating uveitis with biologic agents. We pick up where we left off last time. Eric, what is the nature of the relationship between neovascularization and TNF? Well, we, we had two patients in our study that, that had pre-existing retinal neovascularization, and they both had regression of the neovascularization while on infliximab, and, and uh, they both actually had vitreous hemorrhages, uh, which is not obviously unheard of when we treat diabetics with panretinal photocoagulation and the neovascularization of the disc or elsewhere sometimes as it regresses, it's not at all uncommon for it to break and bleed and cause a vitreous hemorrhage. And we, we observed that twice. And uh, we reported that as actual toxicity in our, our, in our clinical trial. But I actually think it's, it's proof of concept that the drug was effective. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us in inflammatory diseases to see either retinal neovascularization due to, you know, if someone's got a bad retinal vasculitis and has resultant retinal ischemia, it's not uncommon for them to get retinal neovascularization, and there are many inflammatory diseases in which choroidal neovascularization is a component, and the, the way that we've, all, in, in the uveitis world, have often always treated these folks is we immunosuppress them first, and we, when we, we've done that, we've observed that the neovascularization often goes away without requiring subsequent photocoagulation, and the reason we suppose that occurs is because we, we presume that intraocular inflammation is an important mediator in causing the development of this sort of abnormal neovascularization. And there have been studies that have been done in, in, that have been published in ophthalmology and basic science journals to indicate that patients who are on tumor necrosis factor blockers uh, that have exudative age-related macular degeneration may have uh, improvement or re- resolution of their choroidal neovascular membranes. So I think, you know, the reason that, that, uh, that, that what we, we saw what we saw is because, you know, inflammatory molecules and TNF-alpha is one important inflammatory molecule you know, vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, is another important inflammatory molecule or a molecule that's, you know, that's secreted during, by some inflammatory cells. Blockage of the uh, activity of those uh, bioactive molecules may improve neovascularization in the eye. And obviously, we're, we're well aware that it does with, with the VEGF blockers. What is Etanercept? Etanercept is, a, is another commercially available TNF blocker. It, it, it's a little bit, it's actually not a monoclonal antibody. It's a fusion protein, which means it's basically uh, a, a FC molecule, uh, which is the back end of a uh, human antibody that's, that, that's paired up with a couple of uh, TNF receptors. Uh, so it, it can bind two TNF uh, molecules uh, at the same time. And it actually, it actually binds tumor necrosis factor alpha as well as tumor, necro- tumor necrosis factor beta, which used to be known as lymphotoxin A. And, and it uh, 
because it's not uh, an antibody, it doesn't fix complement. And so, I mean, it has it, it and it mainly uh, binds free TNF as opposed to buying, binding cell surface bound uh, TNF. And you know, it's just, it's a different molecule. It's given subcutaneously twice a week, or I think it can be given once a week, as opposed to infliximab, which is given intravenously. And it's it's a it's just a different molecule. It's it's been reported to be very effective for inflammatory diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis. The, uh, the general impression of the UVIS community, and you know, I say this as having as, as one who has already uh, indicated that I have, have had a potential conflict of interest because I've done research for both of the other TNF blockers, adalimumab and uh, infliximab. But with that full disclosure having been made, I think it's the impression of the UVIS community that Tanercept has not been uh, proven to be as effective for uveitis, or has not been observed to be as effective for uveitis as, as infliximab has been. I think the data on adalimumab is still uh, not sufficient to really compare it to either one of those two drugs. Eric, there's an additional TNF blocker as well. Is that right? Yeah, no, it, actually it does. It, it's, it's the, the, there is a third TNF blocker, which is commercially available. It's called adalimumab. It's marketed under the name Humira. It, it's a drug that, in theory, has many of the good characteristics of both Tanercept and infliximab. So, it's similar to infliximab in that it, it is a monoclonal antibody. It is specific for tumor, for tumor necrosis factor alpha, and it binds both free and cell surface uh, expressed TNF. It has, in common with the Tanercept, that it's subcutaneously administered, and it's only has to, it only has to be given as an injection every two weeks. So it has the convenience, I guess, of a Tanercept, and uh, in, in theory should have the bioactivity of infliximab, and it's a fully human molecule. So infliximab is a uh, chimeric molecule that has some mouse protein as well as some human protein, and uh, there are antibodies that form against non-human proteins in these chimeric uh, molecules that, that may, over time, limit their efficiency because antibodies are formed to the molecule itself. Some people call those anti-idiotypic antibodies. Uh, in, in the case of infliximab, they're referred to as antibodies to infliximab. So in theory, with a drug like adalimumab, it may be uh, possible that the formation of these anti-idiotypic antibodies would be less uh, likely to occur because there's no non-human protein to serve as, a, as an antigenic target to, to lead to anti-idiotypic antibody formation. Uh, so in theory, uh, adalimumab should be as good as infliximab. But, you know, I tell another little uh, thing that I'll tell some of our residents is immunology is like a box of chocolate. You never really know what you're going to get with the, any of these drugs until you, you know, bite into them. You know, we're doing it. We're doing a trial of infliximab right now, and we're doing it in collaboration with two other centers. One is at University of Illinois Chicago with Deborah Goldstein's group, and another one is uh, at Cleveland Clinic with uh, Kareen Louder's group. And we'll be presenting in preliminary results of that at Arvo this year. And you know, we found it to be, certainly to be effective in some patients, whether it's as good as infliximab, even when as comparing it to the historical data that we generated in our trial. It's it's uh, it's hard to know. And of course, you know, there there have been no. I, I've said previously that that our impression, many of our impression, is that. The Tanercept is less effective than infliximab, but, but there have been no randomized studies comparing any of these three drugs to each other in UVIs or, for that matter, that I'm aware of in any other inflammatory disease. So. Can you say something about the biologics that target cytokine receptors? Yeah, so the, the one that I have the, the greatest amount of familiarity with and that's been studied the most in, in the treatment of uh, uveitis is a drug called Xenopax, uh, or uh, Xenopax is a trade name. Uh, Dicluzumab is the name of the antibody, and it's, a, it's an antibody against the IL-2 receptor alpha subunit, which is present on T cells, and basically by blocking it, you prevent the cytokine IL-2 from activating T cells. That IL-2 receptor uh, alpha subunit is also known as CD25, and 
there's been extensive, uh, really good work done at the National Institutes of Health by Robert Nussenblatt's group on studying the, the benefit of diclizumab in the treatment of uh, basically refractory uh, UV, you know, intermediate posterior and pan-uveitis. And they've got a couple of really good publications that indicate that in selected patients that, that uh, diclizumab is a very effective uh, treatment for, for uveitis and is safe as far out as four years. And I followed a number of those patients when I was a fellow there, so I guess that's a maybe that's a conflict too. But uh, but it, but it certainly seems to be uh, effective in selected patients, and it's a drug that's also been shown to be beneficial in, in the treatment of MS. Uh, it hasn't gained a really wide platform in the treatment of uveitis uh, outside the NIH and a few other centers, uh, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. But uh, but it, it it has it, it certainly is a, seems to be effective in some patients. Um, there's another drug called bazaliximab, which is a, another uh, IL-2 receptor an antagonist that, that uh, binds the same molecule. And, and both, both these drugs have been used primarily in the treatment of solid organ transplant rejection. Uh, and uh, for, for whatever reason, bazaliximab's never really been used much uh, for uveitis or studied much for uveitis. There was a, a commercial uh, a trial that was going to be sponsored by the, uh, the maker of that drug within the last year, and they, they decided to delay it. Uh, for reasons that I don't really know, both those IL-2 receptor, uh, in, I mean, antagonists, specifically, specifically the clizumab, uh, have been thought about at least for the treatment of uveitis, and, and uh, the clizumab has actually got a fair, uh, fair track record behind it. There is an IL-6 receptor blocker out there called tocilizumab. Uh, it's not been studied at all in IDUs that I'm aware of, but you know, IL-6 is another one of those, uh, what some people refer to as a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and so that would be of theoretic interest. There's a drug called efilizumab or Raptiva that's been FDA-approved for the treatment of plaque psoriasis, which is a pan-lymphocyte-expressed uh, antigen that, that might, in theory, be of benefit. I just saw a report today that indicates that there there there, there have been reports of PML or multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a, an infection that's previously been mainly seen with AIDS patients in, a, in, in patients treated with efilizumab, so they're uh, I think they're putting a warning on uh, that drug for that reason. I can tell you there have also been reports of PML in patients treated with other biologics, including natalizumab, which is an integrin blocker used to treat multiple sclerosis, and, and even with rituximab, uh, as well as with other immunosuppressives. So that's another one of those uh, not-nice-to-fool-with-mother-nature type things. It's a pretty devastating infection if you get it. And it's one of those prion-type uh, diseases. But, you know, there are so many potential targets. I mean, there's IL-1, which is uh, blocked by a drug called Anakinra, uh, which uh, I think has not been shown to be particularly effective for uh, eye disease, maybe less effective than uh, the TNF blockers even for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. So it really hasn't uh, grabbed hold of uh, the market for any uh, inflammatory indication that I'm aware of. Uh, but, you know, there are just so many potential targets. There's a drug called Orentia or Abitacept that's out there that, that blocks the, a molecule called uh, CTLA-4, uh, which is important in the co-stimulatory activation of uh, T cells, and uh, that's been shown to be effective in treatment of arthritis, and I'm sure that someone will try it in, in uveitis as well. Uh, so it's it's pretty, I guess, all, for all these uh, basic science immunologists and rheumatologists that have been uh, diligently plugging away for years, now, now is their time to really shine, and, and their understanding of the immune response and uh, the identification of potential targets is really becoming a big uh, clinical and uh, clinically important as well as a commercially important area of expertise. What are the interferons, and what is the ophthalmic track record with them? Uh, interferons are actually a naturally occurring cytok uh, cytokine themselves, but, uh, but you know, so for example, the interferons are used to treat multiple sclerosis like Avonex and beta-seron and uh, copaxone. You know, multiple sclerosis has a lot in common with 
Euveitis, you know, they have similar animal models, and Euveitis has been associated with multiple sclerosis. And there have been those who have attempted to use uh, interferons in the treatment of uh, inflammatory diseases. In Europe, they're really there are investigators who believe that, that interferons are very effective for the treatment of Bichette's disease, and there have been those that have used it to study MS-associated uveitis, like pars planitis, uh, and, uh, you know, for uh, whatever reason, and, and some of it is probably expense, and some of it is the, due to the fact that these interferons have uh, pretty nasty side effects. They make people feel like they have the flu all the time. Uh, for the, maybe for that reason, they've not quite grabbed as big of a foothold in the U.S. market as as they uh, might have in other markets. But, but they're certainly, especially in Europe, th these drugs are well-liked and commonly used for the treatment of certain inflammatory diseases. Eric, how do intravenous immunoglobulins work? Well, they, they probably work in a whole lot of different ways, and I don't think we know exactly what the most important mechanism is. Uh, you know, some of it may be due to the fact that they, they bind pathogenic antibodies and get them out of the system, and some of it may be due to uh, complement activation and, and upregulation of activity of, of the patient's own uh, immune uh, responses. And uh, I don't know if we know exactly exactly how they work or why they work. I, IVIG is another one of those things. That it's basically pooled immunoglobulin from hundreds or thousands of patients. And so there are risks for transmission of communicable diseases that, that are transmitted in plasma that are associated with it. It's also very costly, but uh, our, our center uh, several years ago studied 10 patients with IVIG that were basically had failed everything else and found that it, in, in half of them it, it was beneficial. Uh, and, uh, one patient developed a uh, hypercoagulable state and, and uh, there was thrombophlebitis. I think one patient had a heart attack. So it's another one of those drugs. It's, it's, it's one of those courts of last resort that sometimes is tried when other things aren't working out. Uh, and it, I think there are a lot of people that think, or some people that think that it's beneficial for autoimmune retinopathy or uh, cancer-associated retinopathy or things like that. But, uh, but it's not used as commonly maybe as some of these other things that we've talked about. Eric, is there anything in the biologic pipeline? I mean, it, but that, the pipeline is it's growing exponentially. You know, every month, week, you know, day. I mean, it's, the, the, like I said this is where all these very bright uh, basic scientists in immunology, or you know, all their years of work, which were probably relegated to the back pages of science-only journals, now they're hugely commercially important. I mean, you know, obviously, look at the blockade of the TNF has been not only incredibly important for our, our you know, clinically for our patients, but it's it's a commercial you know windfall for the companies that make these drugs. So, a lot more R and D is being dedicated to uh, to, to basically finding immunologic targets that may, A, you know, be very clinically effective and be limited with minimal toxicity. I, I always talk to our residents about the holy grail of immunology, and they understand the holy grail being basically finding these, these drugs that are highly effective and minimally toxic. And that's, I think that's really what, that's, that's, the, that's what the promise of these biologics is. Eric, what role do biologics play in your uveitis practice? Well, you know, we, we use them. We, we use a lot of TNF blockers, and, you know, of course, we've had the trials of, of, of a couple of them. But, but uh, you know, we, we tend to use them primarily in situations where, where someone has failed prednisone or either failed prednisone or failed to be able to get off prednisone despite the use of multiple other immunosuppressives. Uh, you know, at the very least, we, we try one or two antimetabolites and uh, often, you know, one or more of the calcium blockers before going to the uh, biologics. Uh, and I'd say that uh, in our practice, for the most part, the biologics have come in ahead of alkylating agents, certainly, uh, and, and a lot of the other drugs that we've uh, talked about thus far. Eric, what is your recommendation for clinicians, for ophthalmologists who are not uveitis specialists? Well, I think, you know, what you, you may have just hit it on the head. I mean, if you have a uveitis person that you can collaborate with, I encourage sort of cultivating that relationship. And if, if you're in a situation where you don't have a uveitis person that, that you can work with, and uh, you're comfortable as, as many 
ophthalmologist would be in, in terms of judging the ocular response to these drugs. And I would encourage, you know, cultivating a relationship with a rheumatologist and keeping good communication because, you know, I think oftentimes a rheumatologist will look at a patient, uh, for example, with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, formerly referred to as JRA or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and they might look at the patient and say, well, the joints are well controlled, so everything's got to be going great. And, and you, you may tell them that the eyes are very inflamed and, and uh, that they need more immunosuppressive. You know, what you need is a rheumatologist or, or internist or a pediatrician or whatever uh, person you're working with that's going to that's going to listen to you and know that you know what you're telling them is is important and that that eyes and joints or eyes and other systemic manifestations, for example, TI and U, you know, eyes and kidneys, you know, the eyes may progress independently to the rest of the body, and so. Uh, when you tell them they need more immunosuppressives, then, then they need to work with you closely so that you guys can uh, provide what's best for the patient. Eric Suler, thank you so much. Oh, this is fun. Eric Suler is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Co-Director of the Uveitis Clinic at the Casey Eye Institute of the Argon Health and Science University and Chief of Ophthalmology at the Portland Veterans Administration Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. His paper, a Prospective Trial of Infliximab Therapy for Refractory Uveitis, Preliminary Safety and Efficacy Outcomes, appears in the July 2005 issue of Archives of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Suler or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.